over the last couple decades, we started increasing the need for things like fire retardants or things that we want like stain resistance or antimicrobial. What we've actually done is added more chemicals to our living environment that do a job some of the times, but most of the time it's not a very good job. But we are consuming them and we're finding them in our blood system. We're finding them out throughout our environment. These materials don't need any. This stuff is fire resistant. Like it's mostly because when you mix the composite of hempcrete, the matrix is made out of lime, like limestone. So it behaves like a ceramic in the dispersal of heat and its its ability to absorb heat. We we see correlations between health, especially when we look at affordable housing, between the materials used in affordable housing, the effect on health and the effect on education because people are consuming chemicals that are having a consequence. Welcome to the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast, a show about human environments and how they can be used as a force for good conversations that educate and inspire people looking for a different way to do real estate. I'm Neil Collins, and on this episode, I'm joined by Jacob Thomas Waddell, president of the Hemp Building Institute, to talk about the emerging market of hemp. One of the perks of the show is that it helps me keep an antenna up for people doing really innovative work. If you've been tuning into the show, you'll know that I love to cover a wide range of guests and topics that are all related somehow to regeneration and how it is being applied through the lens of real estate. We've covered work on things like the revitalization of communities, designing for circularity, building healthy and non-toxic homes, and regenerating soil. But there's one topic in particular that we haven't talked about yet, and that is hemp building. You see, I get to talk with a lot of people and visit many incredible projects as part of this work. In fact, I am recording this intro from a small cabin on the edge of the ocean, looking out over the San Juan Islands in the Salish Sea, where we're part of an agrihood development team. This work has brought me in contact with innovative architects and builders that are creating homes using materials like straw bale, cob, adobe, and timber framing, but never to any hemp homes. That's why I find it odd that I get asked so often that if we've been involved in any hemp building projects. It made me start to wonder, where are all these hemp buildings? A Google search made me realize that while yes, there are stories out there of buildings that have had hemp as a construction material, there really aren't that many, at least here in the United States. And this is where the podcast story begins today. Our guest, Jacob Thomas Waddell, is a hemp building expert and founder of the nonprofit Hemp Building Institute. Jacob helps to shed light on the current state of hemp building, its origins, and where we can likely expect it to go. For me, I found it particularly interesting that rather than building entire homes from hemp, 
we'll likely see hemp infused into lots of different building products as time goes on. This is a part of the industry that I think will be worth paying close attention to as more and more people seek out healthy and sustainable building materials that are good for both people and the planet. Now, before we jump into the interview with Jacob, I want to give a quick update on the things we've been working at at Latitude that have been inspired by you, the listeners and supporters of this podcast. For the past two and a half years, Latitude has been primarily focused on working with property sellers and buyers and connecting them with resources that can help bring about regenerative outcomes for projects ranging from homes to farms to even larger communities. But there really hasn't been much direct access to our internal community at Latitude. And this is because we've largely focused on real estate licensees that want to change the way that they are practicing real estate. But time and again, we are finding incredible innovators and visionaries that are pursuing projects that are regenerative, sustainable, or community-oriented. And these people want to be in a relationship with other like-minded and dedicated professionals this is why we have expanded our Mighty Network community offering to include what we call the Regenerative Practitioner. This is where we are coming together twice a month virtually to connect with our peers in the broader regenerative real estate movement to mastermind, share resources, and get connected with one another. This group is meant for those people that are looking to take their careers and projects to the next level. I am personally excited to bring my background around capital strategies and financing to help people get their ideas out into the world and to learn from others how they are catalyzing regenerative outcomes in their own communities. We have guest speakers lined up each month for workshops with direct access for deeper conversations. One of our big goals in 2024 is to create a fund that regenerative practitioners can invest into that gives members access to bridge financing to initiate projects. We'll be creating a steering committee for this if you're interested in getting involved. And our next upcoming workshop is on October 18th. We will be joined by Cynthia Tina hosting the workshop entitled Intentional Community and Models for the Future of Housing. I hope to see you there and thank you for being along on the evolution of this work. It is a privilege to bring these conversations out into the world. Jacob, thank you for joining me on another episode of the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, we have Jacob Waddell on, the president of the Hemp Building Institute. Jacob, I'm curious. Uh, how does one become the president of the Hemp Building Institute? Well, first, thanks, Neil, for having me, having me on the, the podcast. So when um, I think I think I'll start kind of middle of my life. My education was material science and engineering focused on plastics. So this is kind of kind of finds a lot of how I see the world. A lot of it's science based, a lot of it's, you know, numbers. And also there, there's a big part of seeing the big picture or trying to see the big picture, which comes from much further back than that, my, my childhood, I think, but it's kind of hard to pinpoint. But just jump into the 
part of my career, I, I was working in the automotive industry and I was kind of working my way up the chain and was program managing products that were coming into a plant that was making parts for cars. And, you know, working all these hours. And then I, I realized one day, what am I doing with my life? And really started contemplating, you know, what do I want my effect or impact on the world to really be? And so I had just gotten my MBA while I was working at that company and uh, was trying to figure out if I was going to get into a business, what kind of business would I want to be in? Like, wh where do I want my life to go from here? And really started focusing in on the environment because really that is one of the things that I think is a dire issue that is worth putting my life and my effort into. So when I dug around, I went through a couple different steps and a couple different ideas and was doing a bunch of research. And I came across what's called hempcrete. Now, hempcrete is uh, using hemp stalks and mixing them with lime as a binder, like limestone-based lime, and creating a wall system. So you're creating the insulation portion of a house. And basically, your entire walls minus the structural components. And um, looked into it, saw that it was a material science issue because a lot of it is binder related. Uh, it was a composite system in some of the most basic terms, which, again, is something I research and study a lot. And I really saw the potential of this growing into something bigger and having a giant impact. Because the major issue that we have right now is that we're consuming and we're creating. Uh, we're consuming a lot of things and throwing a lot of things away instead of trying to reuse and keep things in our cycles, our life cycles, and you know, keeping them in use. We're also creating. And, and the creating part really comes down to chemicals and specifically plastics. We invented something at the time that we thought a great benefit was, was that it could last forever, that it should be chemically stable for an extended period of time. And this is plastics. Now, the problem is that it's chemically stable enough where it doesn't degrade and, and separate into its composite parts to be reused, like is the natural order. So we've started creating chemicals, like you know things that make things stain resistant, that are forever chemicals. And we're creating plastics that we just can't get rid of that end up like in the oceans or in the soil or in our blood system. So there's issues here that we need to start changing in order to survive long term on this planet. I've got to ask you, like, why did you get into plastics? Like, that seems to be a big jump to, to go from plastics and in, into hemp. The only thing that I can really think of is this like popular quote from that movie with Miss Robinson about like, there's one word that you need to know, plastics. <laughs> to be fair, this is a 15 year jump. So it's there's been a lot of evolution in me and my understanding between then and now. And then um, we're talking about, you know, getting into college and seeing opportunities and seeing something new and seeing something that's developing and can have leaps and bounds. And there's, there's potential there. Uh, at the same time, studying this stuff, I did start having some feelings about the negative side. The, the fact is that without plastics, the health industry wouldn't be where it's at. Technology could not be where it's at. Like most of what we thrive on right now is because of plastics that are specifically made for specific purposes, you know, heart stints 
and like our cell phones that would have been impossible without these things. Now, at the same time, we've also just started using plastics just for everything because it's it can be cheap because it's a byproduct of the petroleum industry. This is really the problem. Plastics are good if used properly, in my mind. Yeah, I think I'm not trying to nitpick your your life experience. Like a, a natural evolution to me would have been like, what about bioplastics? But it seems like there's there was this like jump into hemp building that that I'm still trying to look for that that deeper connection. Yeah, so I looked into bioplastics. Basically, my my arc was. Oh, there's plastics in the water. That's a bad thing. How can we get plastics out of the water? What about bioplastics and biocomposites and these things? Oh, then I realized that even like the biodegradable stuff or the compostable stuff, if you don't put it in the specific environment required to dissolve these things, it doesn't really do the job. So if it ends up in the dump with everything else, it's still going to be there a couple hundred years. Mm. You know, it really needs an ecosystem consumed. So I saw flaws in that system. And then I, I realized that recycling in general is an incredibly flawed system, honestly, created by the plastics industry in order to promote them over the glass industry back in the bottles back in the, the 60s and 70s. So you start seeing these reasons why things are created and the flaws in the system. I, I was really trying to engineer something that would try to suck plastics out of water, microplastics specifically. It got to a certain place where I, I realized that I couldn't take the next technological leap without lots of funding. And it wasn't a solid enough idea to really pursue that. So when I came to hempcrete, it was almost like an easy replacement to something that's horribly wrong. Our, our built environment is... 40% of the carbon footprint of the world. 11% is the materials, 29% is the operation of the building. We have made technological leaps, basically forced in by the creation of the air conditioning system and, and the plastics industry to try to create sealed boxes where we pump everything in mechanically. Before that, hundreds, thousands of years, our buildings breathe. Our buildings like were things that that interacted with the environment you know they they were they changed their humidities and moisture they were affected by the heat in the environment around them so it may seem like a giant leap and that's kind of where the, the it was a it was a slow walk basically and then when i found this thing i was like this is something that i thought had a great deal of potential that as a material scientist i have a specific advantage in in developing and pushing forward. Yeah, so that's that's how I ended up with him. Well, that that must have been in the mid 2000s. I would ascertain just from from your timeline. And and this is a an amazing segue into really the forefront of, of an industry because there's been a lot of evolution from farm bills and prohibition and legalization. Like can you really paint a broad stroke picture on What's been going on in this industry since you've really immersed yourself into it? Okay, so the reality is my timelines move a lot faster because it's just the way I operate and move quickly. So I actually would have been it would have been the mid it'd probably been twenty seventeen ish. Um, but here's the arc: is twenty fourteen? There's a big giant push to try to legalize hemp. It gets approved for like scientific facilities and research. 
at that point, you start to see the development of the hemp industry. Now, when it was first proposed, the focus was on the traditional uses of hemp, which are fiber, uh, grain, potentially things like building materials. But what ended up happening was the CBD world kind of took over. The cannabinoid world came underneath it because there was more potential money there because of many different reasons. And so that started taking things over. And then 2018 Farm Bill, it became legal to grow in states. You know, states can make up their own rules. So it wasn't necessarily national, but it was basically nationally decriminalized. And you had to have a farm program, but you could grow this stuff. That was the big boom. And then suddenly all these people were growing. But now they saw that the money was in the CBD world. So all the money went there. And now you're seeing that kind of bubble burst. And you're starting to see two things. One, which is a negative, which there's a lot of farmers that lost a lot of money and are very upset about what happened, which are difficult because we need farmers to grow this stuff. And the other side of it is... You're seeing the industry turn its eyes back to the industrial purposes, which is the grain, the fiber, and things like the building materials. So you're starting to see an industry-wide refocus. Now, when we talk about hemp building products, that story really starts in the 80s. So in the 1980s, there was a French builder trying to figure, he was trying to repair buildings that were using wattle and dock. And what people were initially doing was taking concrete and putting it in there. What was causing that was a moisture barrier. So suddenly, this thing that had been able to breathe and had moisture going in and out now had a stopping. That was creating mold. That was creating rot. That was basically destroying these historical buildings. So doing his own research, he came up with the original, what has been thought of as hempcrete, as we currently think of it which is hemp mixed with a lime-based binder. And there is often, especially in the early days, a little bit of Portland cement in there just for strength reasons that were demanded by the French government. But so that's in the 80s. So since then, it's been developing in Europe and creating and growing and getting bigger. And, and there's been projects in the United States. Uh, there's some projects, free permitting that apparently have been done, but the first permitted ones were like in 09. And I think really, I think 2010, it was when it was like actually sent out in uh, Asheville, uh, North Carolina. I think they had three or four there. They had There's one in Tarpon Springs, I think in 2012 in Florida. And you start seeing them pop up a little bit. But because this is, again, before that 2014, where we could grow hemp as you know research, this was before that even happened. So there was not enough momentum. And there's, there's real price difficulties that come in when you have to import all your materials. So now what we're seeing is since the 2018 Farm Bill, especially because we're starting to see the hysteria about the cannabinoids kind of die down and seeing this refocus, you're, you're starting to see an industry develop. So this is, I will tell you through my eyes on this process. So I think it was, I want to say it was the like the winter or fall of 2018. I went to a thing called the Hemp Building Summit in, in Idaho. And that's where a lot of people that were kind of tinkering with this idea and starting to develop things in the hemp world really kind of came together. This was put together by a company called Hempitecture, who's really been trying to lead a lot of different things in this industry. That's where I met what was developing the start of the U.S. Hemp Building Association, which is the trade association. 
And I guess this must have been 20, I'm guessing 2019, actually. I'm doing my calendars right. And so in 2020, I became involved more. Um, I think in 2020, January 2020, I jumped into the uh, one of the committees, the Regional Leaders Committee, like leadership group, uh, became the secretary. Then by that fall, I was on the board of the USM Building Association. I became the president. And basically was trying to take what I had learned in the corporate world in automotive and try to fix up what was happening in this trade association the best I could and really try to make it more of a like business minded rather than being, um, for lack of a better term, a little hippie. There are some real professionals that were in there from the beginning, so I don't want to discount that at all. But there was still an impression of this as, you know, a cannabis thing rather than being a legitimate solid building products that have a lot of benefits. So from there, we've seen the development of the industry. We see more products coming out. Hemp Protecture has moved on to now working on bad insulation. And in 2018, I think, Hemp Wood started in Murray, Kentucky, which makes like a wood replacement that is like flooring. Um, we've seen the actual hempcrete side of things development a lot more. There's a company called Amerisham that does like spray-in insulation in Pennsylvania. We're also seeing these European companies that have already built up. There's block manufacturers, like there's this company called ISO Hemp. And there's also large producers of hemp herd, which is like the the stock material, which is the, the major product in these that are coming overseas. And so we're seeing rapid growth. We're also seeing technological advances, people experimenting with things, people trying different binders. So we're really seeing a developing industry. Now, as the U.S. Hemp Building Association and the U.S. Hemp Building Foundation with that, um, I helped push forward the International Residential Code Appendix development for hemp creek construction. That will be in the 2024 IRC. So we're, we're making advances as far as getting codes set up and making it permissible and really trying to convince everybody that this isn't just a idea, but these products are out there. They're high performing and they're quality. So yeah, this is good. Let me, let me pick up on some semantics that I'm really curious about because I feel like getting IRC building code updates to allow for hempcrete is a really big deal. But you said we're, we're trying to convince everybody. And it sounds like, especially if you have a mature market in Europe and they're eyeing the U.S. market of like, wow, that there's a lot of potential there. That's a supply side of the question. Let's, let's convince people. But what is the, how do you work on the demand side where you can compel people? Like what, what are those reasons that the home resident or the building uh, occupier or the manager or the construction firm, like why would they be compelled to work with Hempcrete over a product that they've known for decades that they can pick up off the shelf at Home Depot? Okay. The truth is that we are only starting to realize some of the damage we've been doing over the decades of building following the current practices. We can start with the like the environmental impact. There's really like environmental situation. There's there's health concerns, and there is just an overall sustainability 
the environmental one really kind of covers most hemp products. Carbon is what makes up a plant. So when a plant grows, it is going through photosynthesis and absorbing CO2 from the air and creating the matter that becomes the plant. So when we talk about using hemp building materials, we are sucking up carbon from the air and by volume, there's a percentage that is then in that final product. So when we talk about hemp creep more than let's say hemp, like the hemp bat insulation or the cloth stuff, um, and this goes very equally with hemp wood, you know, you're using a high volume at that point or a higher volume of the material. So you are actually creating a carbon negative building material. This is so beyond the norm that it's almost hard to explain to people because when you talk about the creation of like anything metal, right? You, you have environmental impacts or carbon impacts of extracting that metal, of processing that metal into something that can then be used to manufacture, of manufacturing that product and of installing that product, all those carbon positives. When you talk about anything plastic, of course, you have the well, you know, the drilling, the manufacturing, the, the shipping it out, and let alone the fact that that stuff's not going to biodegrade. So you have just positive on positive, and you're normally trying to lesser that positive. You know, concrete, incredible amount. But hemp is collecting a bunch of carbon as it grows. You cut it down. Now you mix it with lime, which does have a carbon footprint. And there is some processing. But overall, without some extenuating, like, major circumstances, you are carbon negative. Let, let me, let me do a quick pause there. Because I'm, I don't know anything about the, the farming of hemp. Is it, is it easy to grow? Are we replacing one one evil with another of like a monocultured industrial crop. Like this is where I am a complete beginner at hemp farming. Okay. So I am not an expert on hemp farming. I've always focused on the end products, but I've been in this industry enough to pick up a lot of stuff. Uh, for one, we're not anywhere near a monoculture. Actually, one of the great things about hemp is that it can grow in so many different climates, but that's, because there have been genetics that have been developed or, you know, through time have been come acclimated to climates, you know, from like Sweden and, you know, they're growing stuff in Kenya, you know, that now. So we have a wide variety. And even when you talk about the United States, things work better in the Southeast than will work in, you know, Pennsylvania. They'll work different than in the Dakotas, which will work different than in California. And we've seen this because we've been pulling genetics from different parts of the world in order to get things to grow properly. And we still have a long way to go when it comes to genetics. But basically, genetics, we're not really approaching a monoculture. And that's actually would be not only against a lot of philosophy of a lot of people in this industry, but it just doesn't make sense for output, for, for actually getting production. When you grow this plant, it, it works best if you put it in a rotation. So you don't want to be growing hemp after hemp after hemp. It's more like I grew corn this year. I'm going to grow, you know, like I'm going to grow corn, then I'll grow hemp, and then I'll grow like bean or something like that, and then corn, then hemp, then bean, just like we've been doing with every other crop. We want this to kind of just fit into what farmers are used to, really for it to produce and be manageable in the long run. It's really good for the soil. 
Now, it absorbs a lot of things, including like heavy metals from the soil. It's, it's called phytoremediation. It's been used to, to clean up different disaster sites. They've grown it from places like Chernobyl to places like in Italy. There was a, a track of land that had been destroyed because there was an automotive factory there. And so there was a whole bunch of heavy metals left in the soil. And so now this land cannot be used for products that would be consumed by humans. But you can grow the hemp there and it'll start absorbing that. And after you know a certain amount of years, suddenly it'll be to a level that you can then grow a crop on it again. So there's a lot of benefits to using this crop on, on the agricultural side. So environmental, carbon negative, it's always weird. <laughs> We've got we've got some marketing work to do on carbon negative and carbon positive. <laughs> yes, Trips. I, I've heard the argue like the, the arguments and the discussion about it. And I, I, it I don't sequesters know. carbon. We'll just put it that way. Um, yes, and it it helps to build the soil. It sounds like what strikes at the heart of somebody that is going to be living in a home that is built with either hemp crete or hemp flooring. Like what the the environment so, aside. How does it relate personally to to an individual? So really, the personal aspect really kind of boils down to health. We spend 87% of our time indoors, like 6% in our car. So that's like 93% of our time, not outdoors. But, you know, it's 87% of our time within buildings, according to a survey by the EPA. Indoors, we see two to five times the pollutants as outdoors. Now, the primary cause of most of those pollutants are either the building materials around us or potentially things we drag into the house with us. So for generations, we've been building homes with natural products. We really haven't had this issue. You know, there's going to be basically an equilibrium with what you'd expect outside, except for maybe cooking devices, which are generating a lot of carbon but other than that, you know, you're not getting anything from the materials around. Now, when we started getting into the plastic evolution, revolution, you know, when we talk about like the 40s and beyond and using AC systems, we start putting materials in that we are then now breathing the VOCs from that are breaking down as they're used. And then we are turning into dust and then we are breathing those in or they're getting on our food or putting on our hands and then we're eating them or they're absorbing through our skin. And over the last couple decades, we started increasing the need for things like fire retardants or things that we want like stain resistance or antimicrobial. What we've actually done is added more chemicals to our living environment that do a job some of the times, but most of the times not a very good job, but we are consuming them and we're finding them in our blood system or we're finding them out throughout our environment. These materials don't need any. This stuff is fire resistant. Like it's mostly because when you mix the composite of hempcrete, the matrix is made out of lime, like limestone. So it behaves like a ceramic in the dispersal of heat and its its ability to absorb heat without decomposing or breaking apart. That's probably a big thing is we need to change our current practices because what we're doing is we're putting more chemicals into our environment. We are creating systems where mold is created. So basically, the cause of mold is moisture gets stopped in some place it would not naturally get stopped because you have some plastic or some other resistant thing. And then that leaves an environment prone for mold growth. So by not 
creating barriers where there's stoppage of water by like not using a vapor barrier, which you can't really use with hempcrete. You allow for the systems to naturally work and not have the creation of mold. Those are probably the biggest things. We, we see correlations between health, especially when we look at affordable housing, between the materials used in affordable housing and the effect on health and the effect on education, because people are consuming chemicals that are having a consequence. Yeah, that this is really my entry point and into why we're even on this podcast is just the realization of and, and I don't even want to say there's a correlation. I would imagine that there's a strong causation that we've just toxified our worlds. And as someone that was a real estate professional that was either developing homes and habitats or helping to transfer them from one owner to the next, to really look at the data, to see these exploding pandemics that are cancer, autoimmune diseases, and you're saying, what on earth is going on? Is it the food that we're eating? Yes. Is it the way that we're building? Yes. So it's not just our outdoor environments, it's our indoor environments. And and I've had such an amazing time learning from people like you. And there's actually an architect out of Southern Oregon named Paula Baker Lepore and her husband, Robert Lepore. They have eco-nest homes. And, and it's really talking about this natural materials that it doesn't have formaldehyde. They can breathe easier. And even the monochromatic colors that come from paint on sheetrock, it's not good for our eyes. Like we can, we can actually have natural plasters that go over things like hempcrete that breathe easier. So I, I think that this is really where I was hoping to go is like, how do we start to drive more consumer demand for it that will hopefully influence the contractor and architect so that you can really have that supply and demand meet meet each other and continue to develop this. And that's where I'm curious, you're the president of the Hemp Building Institute. It sounds like you've got things going on with updating the IRC building code. Like, Where do you really want this organization to go? What What is its role within the, the greater ecosystem? So we did help just finish off the, the code work you know, that was something I had started when I was president of the Hemp Building Association. I really needed to see completed. Uh, we're actually moving away from that type of work, and we're trying to hand it back over to the U.S. Hemp Building Association. Uh, really, where we're going is affordable housing. The reality is that the worst cases of environmental impact, health impact, and sustainability usually falls in affordable housing. The numbers are difficult to make work right now. But we're trying to figure out how to make them better. And there's a giant push. So you you talk about the health need. The reality is that we are just beginning to understand the health consequences of building materials. And that's just kind of coming up to the vision of, you know, world leaders and stuff. It's not even discussed. Environmental impact, we already know. And this is already checking all those boxes. And sustainability, we know. So by trying to key in on the points of, of meeting these goals that different groups are making for environmental impact and, and sustainable impact, we hope that that can help mitigate some costs and we can really start working this in. Because the reality is with all these great building ideas, we don't need dozens of them. We need hundreds and thousands of them to really make an impact. And 
So we need to figure out how to kind of mainstream, if you will, these as soon as possible. If we can figure out how to make it work in affordable housing or in government subsidized housing, then it becomes attainable for almost everybody, hopefully. And that's that's really kind of our thought process and our strategy. So we're, we're trying to work on the costs. We're working with a couple other groups around the country that have also built houses and are really kind of focused kind of in this area to try to get our numbers together and really figure out strategically how to try to get adoption of this. Um, part of that is the codes, because let's be real, it doesn't get billed if the permitting office doesn't feel comfortable with it. But in the end, it's it's going to take buildings and getting those buildings up that are is going to make the difference. Right now, we have, I think, less than 100 hemp-free buildings around the country. Um, we have a long way to go. What, what was the decision-making process, Jacob, between let's go with affordable housing to try to enter into more mass market versus you know, taking a, a playbook out of Tesla to say, let, let's focus on the luxury market and try to go mainstream for, from that direction. I would say, in short, is, is it kind of like you said, where, where do you fit in the ecosystem? There, there are plenty of people building the houses for the rich right now with these materials. These are high-performing, healthy, you know, environmentally friendly materials. There's a Cape Cod house that was built last year. Um, you know, there's sizable things. Really, we saw the need and the push for trying to bring it to the affordable level, to try to, try to find a way to make the math work out that the average American could afford these things and could consider them when they're building a house or can look for it when they're looking to buy a house. We get a lot of uh, architects and engineers and designers that tune into the podcast. If, if you're talking directly to that group, like what, what do you think that their steps are in order to begin to incorporate this into their designs, into speaking to their clients or, or like what, if you're if you're targeting that demographic, what's their approach to help further this this industry along? I, I think there there needs to be greater education and greater understanding of the health, environmental, and the negative sustainable practices that we currently use. The AIA. I mean, so many of the trade source organizations. The AIA is connected to the 2030 concept. And that was them trying to come to like carbon neutral building, I believe, by the year 2030. So there's the the trade organizations and the groups have seen the need to make these changes. So I I think that, you know, that the architects and designers are such an important part of this. And it kind of there's like two sides of it. One is, do they understand that health and environment is a situation and an issue and are wanting to, you know, to champion it. If that's, if they don't understand, then they need to just kind of begin with at base education, understanding the health concerns. Um, right now, I'm taking this course by the Healthy Materials Lab, by Parsons New School. Um, they you know, have an online course, but it goes over the health consequences of what we're currently doing. That's a good educational piece. When we talk about environmental 
there's a lot more studies that need to be done, basically LCAs and really kind of breaking that down. That's a whole nother conversation about the LCA world and where we're at and where we need to be um, because we have some some ways to go there to get, uh, let's say, harmonious understanding of how we calculate these things. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think education is a big part. And then if you are a champion, then I, I think the conversation really is focusing on, on those health benefits and really focusing in on those environmental impacts. Really, it's talking to your customer. And it's trying to understand what they want and what they need and what they take is important. What we're seeing in the younger generations, and we'll, the expectation is to continue seeing this, is more awareness and more concern with the environment and their health. And if you find out, you know, they're big into yoga and they, they're trying to eat the healthiest foods, Bring up the fact that you understand that the house you live in and the products you live in, you are breathing those in and you're consuming those every day of your life. And a lot of these things, we don't know what the, the consequences of. Uh, what it, I don't, so I was just talking with a colleague of mine that um, she's pregnant and let's say she wanted to build a, a nursery off of her house uh, or an additional room. Is this something from the consumer side? And, and it feels really disingenuous to call a homeowner a, um, a consumer, but let's say she wanted to build it. Is, is going with a hemp building material a, a viable path for somebody like that that wants to remodel their house or create an addition? Like, or is this just for new construction um, type of projects? Absolutely can be used to reverb. There's people that are focusing specifically on that in our industry, using it as, as a, as a wall replacement, basically can maintain the, the existing framing and putting this in for insulation, uh, basically just changing some of the things in their house, especially if you're going to be looking at historic homes. Um, it's almost like this is something you really should be considering. Cause again, what, what we see is if you try to do modern things, that have negatives in modern housing, but like like spray and foam. Spray and foam traps moisture, like wherever it is. So it causes rot. It causes a lot of mold issues. It can cause a lot of damage, uh, let alone the off-gassing and all that. So if you did something like that to an historic home, your timbers are probably going to end up rotting because the moisture is going to get trapped right against the timber. And, you know, moisture, like I said, comes from everywhere. You know, you're, you're, if you cook inside your house, if you take a shower, if you breathe, you're creating moisture inside your house. And if that doesn't have a place to go, it's going to it's going to find somewhere to sit. And that's why we get mold and, and a lot of this rotting and destruction of our building materials. So, yes, absolutely. That's that's when we look at the when it was originally created, it was originally created to repair buildings. Does um, it have a pretty good R value on it? So really, when we look at R per inch, um, we're seeing about a two. So it's it's not that high. But the real tricky part is there's actually three parts of its thermal performance. The R value is just your, your thermal conductivity. And that's the basics of what everybody uses in the industries. And there's reasons for that because many of the products benefit from just looking at this one number and they needed something to compare. Um, there's also a thermal mass effect. So you're actually creating a, a wall that is, you know, has some density to it. 
So you have thermal inertia. So when the sun hits it, it's not like your house suddenly becomes warm. That heat needs to transfer all the way through that building material to come out the other side. You do see allocations for this um, in the building code because it's, it's a known fact. And then you have what's called the hygroscopic effect, which so you, when you picture this, you have a matrix of stone and you have little pockets with plant material, which is the hemp herb. Moisture can travel through the stone. And when it gets into the hemp herd, it's kind of like in an environment, if you will. And then it can pass through the stone. And it's always trying to reach equilibrium between the whole thing. But this moisture within that plant material, as the temperature drops, it will condense. And as it heats up, it will evaporate. Now, condensation actually releases heat. So the temperature starts coming down and all these little pockets in your wall are responding by having a physical reaction that is releasing heat. And then as it heats up, the opposite happens. You know, it evaporates. It's the cooling mechanism. You know, it's why we sweat. So you, you have all three of these things adding to the thermal performance, which is why when you look at the thermal performance of hempcrete, it always outperforms its R values. Where when you look at conventional building materials, they almost always underperform because they're tested at, you know, specific humidity and specific temperature range. And so they have kind of fixed the rules and played into that game as much as they could to get the best quote unquote performance. But really, it is benefited by the testing blindness, if you will. So, um, and and I, I'm going to geek out a little bit here because I'm, I'm trying to understand the, the construction for um, your building envelope. If, if you're, are you using two by fours? Like if you're building a denser wall, do you have studs that you're, you're putting hempcrete between? Like what, what does this look like? Yeah. Um, so you have stud framing. Stud framing is common in this country. You can also do it with masonry and kind of look at an air gap and put it against it. But since stud framing or even timber framing, you want to look at it that way. Uh, you can either have hempcrete that completely envelops it. So it's called like a center stud. So you have hempcrete on both sides. You can have an exterior stud and have the hempcrete, you know, from that going in and have that, that one side of the stud exposed before, you know, um, a final plaster layer or final finish is put on it. Or you can have interior studs or you can have double studs. You know, you can do all, all sorts of things. So, does that, does that make sense? And then basically yeah. you're filling in. So okay. like, let's say someone's talking to me about, you know, th these are often thicker walls, you know, eight to 12 inches is not uncommon. Someone's just talking to me about a 12 inch wall and, you know, it's that. And then you have your stud in the middle and then you have to, you know, carve tunnels and stuff for anything, any sort of circuitry or plumbing that you want in the wall system. Uh, unless you put it on the exterior internal of the house. How do you yeah. carve a tunnel through hempcrete? So hempcrete is actually not that hard to cut. It's not like uh, cutting concrete or something like that. So you can often take a Dremel tool or something like that and kind of shave things in. Other people that are making precast, which we haven't really gone into manufacturing styles, but there's about three or four, depending on how you look at it. They can put in their, their mold, you know, channels, channel systems. Okay. 
Yeah. And the reason I ask is like we work with a lot of folks and, and myself personally, even on my own house projects, is you go talk to your contractor about something that you want to do. Maybe it's a little innovative. Maybe it's it's uh, new <laughs> in the marketplace. And you just looked at it like you're crazy. And they're like, nope, we don't do it that way. I've got my drywall team. I've got my blow and insulation team. I've got, you know, this is how we run electrical. And there's just a lot of resistance simply because people, this is a transactional thing. We're going to get in, get out. And, you know, I charge by the hour and I'm going to be in there for six hours. Um, So I feel like we have this hurdle to get over as a general industry to say, how do we normalize this? And how do we get over these simple barriers of like, how do you run wiring and conduit and plumbing? Um, so it, that that's where my brain goes. And, and I feel like that's uh, a whole different podcast and, and webinar series and things like that. But well, I, I can simplify something. So there, we, going back to the manufacturing techniques, basically there's cast in place, which can either be done hand cast or sprayed in. Or precast, you create it in a manufacturing facility and you bring it to the job site. I and some people in the industry believe precast is the way forward because it can take a couple months for something to cure on site. But if you create a block, if someone knows how to use a masonry block, it's not that large of a leap. And if people are using precast panels, slapping up a panel, it's going to be heavier than, you know, maybe a a sip that they might be used to or something like that. But it's just slapping up a panel. And again, with the wiring and everything is at that point, you do that stuff or you figure out that plan in the manufacturing facility. And it hopefully can come to the job site and it is as simple as possible. It will still have a learning curve and it still will be resistance due to this. But if we can lessen that curve if we can make it as close to what they do today as possible we have a better chance that's amazing well jacob this has been really educational and informative for me uh let me ask you where where does funding come from for hemp building institute are you a 501c3 or what what does that look like from the the business side we are a 501c3, so uh, feel free to donate or please visit us at hempbuildinginstitute.org and consider donating. We are also working, um, you know, for government grants. We have a couple billion dollars or so that right now is really interested on environmentally friendly and sustainable building practices and implementing these. Um, so we'll be looking at some of those funds and hopefully getting involved in projects like that. We're also looking at, at, at private funders and, and this side of things. Uh, you know, the fact is that in order for us to move this forward, it's going to take a lot of people. It's not going to be done by a single person. And different people have to do what fits into their skill sets. And if you just happen to have some money lying around, it is very helpful to pass that money on to some people that are trying to do the work. So. Yeah. That's one way you can help. And if not, if, if there's other ways you can help, look at it and see see how you can figure yourself in. Because like every emerging industry, it's not just the builders or the manufacturers, but it is lawyers, it's accountants, it's real estate professionals, it's installers, it is, you know, processors of every level of the component. All these people 
that ecosystem is what it takes really to make the industry thrive. Yeah, that's amazing. And and I I just want to underscore this for all the podcast listeners. Like we we have a real responsibility if we want ecologically sound, healthy homes and habitats. Um, we we need to support efforts to do this through donations, through recommendations to your your contractors and your building experts, through your purchases. Like we we are at such a precipice, and and I feel like we've got some really good momentum, and we can just keep going with it. Uh, Jacob, where where can people learn more about what you're doing and and stay up to date on the things that you've got going on with the Hemp Building Institute and the affordable housing efforts that that you're doing? Uh, is there a website or Instagram or anything like that? Um, hempbuildinginstitute.org is our website. We are on Instagram. I think it's hemp underscore building underscore institute. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, we're on Facebook. Those are all places to find us and kind of keep up to date. With what's happening, you want to reach out to me personally, it's jacob at hempbuildinginstitute.org is my email address. And, uh, you know, we got to keep moving things forward. And and like you said, um, you know, we, we all can do something. And, and, and even if it is asking questions, asking your contractor, asking, you know, the people around you if they are aware of this and like spreading that information that's going to be part of this. We need this to be, you know, viral in a way where we need a collective understanding that this stuff is around and exists. And that's going to be a big hurdle and a, and a big thing that we all can help overcome. Well, Jacob, thank you for your time. We're certainly going to have to have you back on uh, to give us some progress updates over time. My my just heart goes out to uh, this endeavor and and I wish you the best of success. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me, Neil. And uh, Yeah, let me know what I can do to help. If you want to follow our work at Latitude, you can follow us on Instagram at latitude.regenerative.re and mine is at I am Neil Collins. We inherently believe in the potential that comes from connecting value-aligned and purpose-driven people together in community. That's why I encourage you to join our mighty network and introduce yourself to the other people working across the globe to advance a more regenerative, resilient, and beautiful world. Here, we want to know what you're working on and what inspires you. Through this platform, you can attend live events, take courses provided by our podcast guests, and create connection with other people and businesses that share your same passion. To join, find the link in our show notes or visit our website at chooselatitude.com. If you'd like to support the show, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow us on your podcast app so that you always have the latest episode downloaded. Another way to support our regenerative field building is to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Positive ratings help attract amazing guests, and they can be the deciding factor for someone else to tune in and listen. And who knows, maybe this is the kind of motivation that it takes for them to finally decide to align their profession with their sustainable and regenerative values and become a positive force for good within their own community. 
This show was produced by myself and edited by Anthony Wallace and offered as a part of our work with Latitude Regenerative Real Estate.